Sure. Uh, theologian Richard Beck wrote, when it comes to God, there's something to see if you have a desire to see it, a willingness to redirect your attention to perceive the world in a new way. Refuse to adjust your attention, however, and, well, there's nothing to see. All through the Gospels, Jesus has been declaring that the kingdom of God is arriving through him. But Israel had developed a very distinct set of expectations of what they believed that kingdom was going to look like. And it created an inattentional blindness, which is an actual thing. Inattentional blindness, meaning that they were looking for something else. Just like we were watching the white-shirted players pass the basketball around, made us blind to the bear that was moving through there as they were looking for something that was not it was was different from what was in front of them. They would look had expectations for what wasn't actually there. They weren't able to see. They weren't able to see what God was doing. So in our text today, Jesus is going to take some time to more clearly illustrate what it is that we as his followers, as people who've embraced this hope of God's kingdom, what, what it is that we should be looking for or how it is. We should be prepared to perceive what it is that, that God's doing. We're continuing on our study in the Gospel of Luke. If you've got a Bible with you, if you'll find your way over to Luke chapter 13, please. Last week, Julie did a great job, didn't she, of, of, yeah, of examining, examining the events that surrounded a healing that Jesus did. It was a miracle as he was on his way uh, to, to Jerusalem. Remember, the section that we're in is called the travel narrative in Luke. It's spending all this time following the events that happened as Jesus led a group of pilgrims from Galilee down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, the annual Passover. And so she had pointed out how that miracle reveals to us uh, the various ways in which the gospel takes up the cause of the marginalized and, and those who are oppressed. And it was a challenging word for us as we contemplate what that means for us as Christ's followers. And here's the thing. As we think about Jesus' followers, I mean, that's one of the things that we're always challenged to do when we're reading the Scriptures. We want to put ourselves in the sandals of those who were, are participating in these events. And, and we think about those who've been following Jesus. We know that they've been anticipating the kingdom of God's arrival, as it, it, you know, to be revealed through Jesus, who they've come to believe is Messiah. They've heard Jesus proclaiming over and over again for three years now that God's kingdom is being revealed and God's kingdom, remember, is not a is not a geographical location. It's not a political institution. It's the rule of God. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the rule of God over humanity and ultimately over the earth. And 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 it wasn't a hope for some place off, you know, up in the sky or off in the clouds. God's kingdom was a way of describing God setting all things right again in this world that He created. And that's what, that's what was promised in the Old Testament, specifically through the prophets, over and over again, God setting all things right. Now, Jesus' followers had, had seen Jesus heal, and they'd seen him do miracles, just like the, the woman that he healed in the passage last week, as we finished, or as we were uh, in the middle of chapter 13. But they hadn't seen anything yet that might resemble a kingdom, at least a kingdom like they were expecting to see. A kingdom activity like they expected to see, like they had been seeing in the kingdoms of the world all around them. And you can imagine them starting to wonder, like, okay, if he is the Messiah, 
Why doesn't he begin his rule and set up his kingdom? Why haven't we formed an army yet? What's what's going on here? I can imagine that things were not adding up very well for those who expected to be sitting on thrones by this time. They weren't seeing the physical, visible manifestation of a kingdom the way they expected to see a kingdom operating. So in our text today, Jesus is going to talk about God's kingdom to temper their and our expectations to help guide how it is that we can train ourselves to observe what it is that God is doing. So if you're there in Luke chapter 13, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, starting with verse 18. It says, then Jesus said, what's the kingdom of God like? How can I illustrate it? It's like a tiny mustard seed that a man planted in a garden. It grows and becomes a tree, and the birds make nests in its branches. He also asked, what else is the kingdom of God like? It's like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. The Roman world, which was in control of everything at the time that this was spoken, did everything big. Rome did everything big. I mean, big architecture, big statues, big parades, big armies. All of it was intended to convey their own sense of transcendence, this this message of transcendence. The bigness was meant to communicate, this is the kingdom of Caesar. Caesar is in charge. You will submit to him and resistance is futile. And we also live in a Western world that prizes big stuff, big events, big business, big max. We uh, are steeped in superhero mythology. We've got this ongoing phenomenon in our culture right now called FOMO. You know what FOMO is, right? The fear of missing out. This, This fear that our lives and activities are too mundane and the big and exciting stuff of the world is passing us by. And sadly... In the world of the church, it's all about those numbers, church growth seminars. I'm inundated with literature all the time for ways in which we can expand membership numbers and move our church to the next level of something. Big conferences and concerts and multi-church sites, everything bigger and bigger. And yet here's Jesus telling us explicitly that God's kingdom is going to operate differently. The world's way of influencing and advancing power is big and bombastic and forceful. And in contrast, God's kingdom grows quietly, modestly, but inevitably. One thing that happens to us as a, as a church is that we've got the book of Acts, right? And, you know, the book of Acts is an exciting book. If you've ever been around the church, you've ever read through that, we've talked through it before. There's a lot that happens in that book. It's accounts of, of so many miracles and salvations happening. We've also got accounts through history of awakenings, you know, and, and mass salvations. And we start imagining that those big movements and healings and mass salvations are supposed to be the norm. We sort of assume that those are the times that God is working, and so we're constantly working towards those moments, those big events, those things that that happen that captures everyone's attention through phenomena or whatever. We see explosive ministry as the baseline, when in fact, those are highlights on the timeline. 
If you think about the book of Acts, the book of Acts covers a period of 60 years. That means that there are a lot of days in between those big events that we read where life seems just very normal and mundane and and ordinary in between those big events that happened. See, what happens when we only focus on the big stuff happening is that we lose sight of the fact that God's kingdom is always at work. God's kingdom is at work right now, right here. Through whom? Through us. That's exactly right. Most of the time, I'm telling you, most of the time, God's kingdom is advancing in this world through very quiet, humble, and seemingly mundane ways. You'd you'd be easy to miss it. Uh, It'd be kind of like a moonwalking bear when you're looking for something else. Jesus, Jesus talks about seeds and yeast, really small things that influence and grow over time. Their impact is not immediately seen. Yeast quietly works its way through a really big lump of, of I was going to say clay, but dough, lump of dough. And it's pretty much invisible, right? As it alters what's happening there in, inside of that dough, the nature of the dough. The seed is buried in the ground. It's unseen, uh, you know, under the surface. We could say very modestly, It's sending down roots that stabilize it and produce something stable that others can find rest and stability in. And it's not up to, this is so important, it's not up to human ingenuity to make any of this happen. Human hands can plant a seed and they can knead some dough, but they can't make that seed turn into a tree and they can't make that dough become leavened and rise. But once yeast gets introduced into a lump of dough, the transformation is inevitable. Nothing's turning that back. We might be tempted to think, you know, that we're of no value to God's kingdom. Like, what do, what do I provide to God's kingdom? Where, what do I, I'm a nobody. I mean, I what? I, I, I work at a bank. I, I'm, I serve tables. How in the world is that of any value to, to the kingdom of God? Listen, don't ever, ever say that. Don't ever think like that because it's so not true. Every act of submission to God's values, every time that we wake up in the morning determined to serve God's purposes, every kind word, every caring act, every listening ear is part of the transformational activity of God's kingdom in this world. And it's something all of us can do, all of us participate in. And and listen, this isn't to disparage big movements. They do happen. Like big movements of revival or awakenings, they happen. They're wonderful, but they're always historically short-lived and oftentimes end up with problems on the other side of it that you got to kind of clean up and figure out uh, through the whole thing. The main activity, as we look at it, we think about Paul's writings in all of his epistles, his letters. They're not about how we can get something big happening. They're all about how you wake up every day and live as a Christian in this broken world. The main activity of God's kingdom is done by people like you and I who wake up in the morning and submit our lives to God, overcoming temptations, determining to do good and not evil, determined to bring grace and not chaos into this world. That is the activity of the kingdom of God. That is something you and I are part of every day. Right now, as a matter of fact, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at work. That's how God's kingdom works in this world. And one day, it'll come to fruition. 
One day, all of this activity that we're involved in, all of this where we've determined to to show love and not hatred, all of those moments that seemingly are unseen by anybody else are going to come to light and God's kingdom will be established in this world. It's inevitable. There is no stopping it. No matter what, you know, some fear monger might say of how this or that law or trend in culture is going to end Christianity. Don't believe that. Don't ever believe that or be bullied by those kinds of fears. There is nothing so powerful that it can stop the advance of God's kingdom in this world and stop his plans of setting all things right. God's kingdom is inevitable. And his kingdom is at work in small ways. It may be quiet and seemingly mundane, but it is inevitable. From the time that Jesus rose from the dead, there is no turning back from this good ending that God has in store. All right, well, let's keep reading here. Verse 22. Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he went, always pressing on toward Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? He replied, work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom, for many will try to enter, but will fail. When the master of the house has locked the door, it'll be too late. You'll stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door for us. But he'll reply, um, I don't know you or where you're from. And you'll say, but we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. And he'll reply, I'll tell you, I don't know you or where you come from. Get away from me, all you who do evil. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for you'll see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but you'll be thrown out. And the people will come from all over the world, from the east and west, north and south, to take their places in the kingdom of God. And note this, some who seem least important now will be the greatest then, and some who are the greatest now will be the least important then. Okay, so, it's a serious warning. Glad you came today. <laughs> It says that someone asked Jesus if only a few will be saved. And what was meant by that? Putting it contextually at the time that he was saying it. Because the biggest problem that we have as 21st century Americans reading scripture is that we're terrible tourists. We we don't know anything about the culture. We don't know anything about what's going on here. We just plow in going, oh, okay, this is what this is about. So let's let's take a breath and look at what is the culture? What was happening here? What is being said He is asking, because he's not thinking like a 21st century church member when he says saved, he's asking, will only a part of Israel actually get in on this end of exile and establishment of God's kingdom? Because in the Jewish mindset then and today, that's what salvation is, an end to exile and the establishment of God's kingdom, which we believe that's what the gospel represents. End of exile, that is reconciliation with God, entrance into his kingdom, which is that salvation that we've hoped for uh, through the forgiveness of sins that's provided for us. So they're asking in that context about Israel. Will only a few people in Israel get in on this? It was an important question because at that time there was an assumption that just because one was Jewish, they were automatically included in, in God's kingdom plans, automatically part of the covenant people because you got the right last name. But everything Jesus has been doing and saying seemed to point to a different idea, that there wasn't some automatic inclusion here. There had to be an intentional choice. 
Jesus calls it here a, a narrow door. In other words, they were, if they're going to enter into God's kingdom, it's going to have to be through these narrowly defined means. And Jesus describes the doorkeeper as one who was teaching in their streets, indicating that he, he himself is that door. He's the one through whom that we're going to enter into this kingdom. So, you know, it's going to be through Jesus as God's Messiah that we enter into the end of exile and the purposes of God's kingdom. Or we could say that if it's not shaped like Jesus, it is not leading us back to God. If it's not shaped like Jesus, if it's not representing who he is and and what he does, it's not leading us towards God's kingdom. And Jesus goes on to illustrate it that way, imagining people assuming their inclusion in the kingdom as though they're trying to pass through the gates of a city and they get stopped by the doorkeeper. And they, they look into the courtyard there and they see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets, all the people through whom the, the promises to Israel came, all the people that this was established on. And then they see even more people. They see a bunch of people that, you know, coming from all over the place, people that they never expected to see there and they certainly didn't believe were, were deserving to be in. But this group looking in are not. They're not in. They're out. And the doorkeeper explains that he doesn't know them or where they're from, getting to this idea of heritage. Clearly, getting to this idea that just because someone maybe grew up in Israel, maybe someone claimed the title of Israelite, doesn't mean they really are part of this family of God, this, this kingdom that God was establishing. And this was revolutionary for the time. For Jesus to say this sort of thing. A person with a fully Jewish heritage, Jesus said, may still be excluded because the qualifications run so much deeper than just race or culture. It has to do with relationship with God. And it's a serious warning. One that that we always have to pay attention to. That one could be in proximity of God's kingdom and yet still miss it. Now, the first application of this was to Israel, as I stated. Israel, who was rejecting God's Messiah and his kingdom message. But it certainly carries over into our world of the church. You know, in the the world that I grew up in, the way the country was, the way the culture was, Christianity was sort of a cultural given. People assumed that because they were born into a church-attending family, they had their name on the church rolls at any given Baptist church, they were automatically on the side of God. You know, you take a poll, what what are you? Well, I'm Christian because I'm not Muslim, so I'm Christian. That's it. And things like denominational affiliation or conservative political or cultural leanings were assumed to be sufficient contact with Christianity that identified a person as Christian. Well, I'm, you know, I'm generally a good person. I support all the right causes. Yeah, God's, you know, (laughs) I'm okay with God. But none of this stuff is the same as relationship. And that's where it gets different. Relationship. And we would describe relationship as a life submitted to God through Jesus. A life where I'm surrendering my rights, my will, my intent, and I'm surrendering it to God's will, God's purposes, God's intent. Now, Look, uh, our our nation's culture isn't really identifying as Christian anymore, but the danger is still just as real. In fact, I would 
suggest maybe it's even a little bit more dangerous because this is all devolved into political battles now. A, a person in the church today could easily assume that, you know, since I vote Republican and I side with conservative values, you know, I'm automatically in God's camp. Of course I'm a Christian because I'm a Republican. But dear friends, it doesn't work like that. Not based on what Jesus is saying here. Right? Got quiet. I don't know. Daryl Bach, Daryl Bach wrote, God does not save us through our activity, through our works, through heredity, what family we come from, or by proxy, through what organization or group we may be associated with. The central issue is about trusting in Christ and not anything else, trusting in our reconciliation with God through what He has provided through His death and resurrection and then the path that He's laid out for us to walk. And that path that He lays out to walk is decidedly different from political embattlements. The path that He lays out very clearly for us is that of the cross. If you're going to follow me, he said, you're going to take up a cross and you're going to follow me. And he didn't just say like, you know, get that over with and get on with your life. He said, every day you pick up a cross and follow me. A path of laying down our lives for the sake of others. A path of loving our enemies and doing good and not cursing even those who oppose us. Now, the other thing about this is that it is not up to us to determine whether or not our neighbor is in close proximity to the kingdom, but out. That's nowhere on this. That's not, that's not our responsibility. It's something that each of us has to do in examining our own hearts. Let's all be sure that we've embraced a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that we're trusting in his sacrifice for us and we're following his path and nobody else's. Let's see to it that we're not just embracing a cultural cause that moves us. Because as exciting as that may be, it's not leading us home. All right, let's keep reading here. Verses 31 to 35. At that time, some Pharisees said to him, get away from here if you want to live. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. Jesus replied, Uh, Go tell that fox, I will keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and the third day I'll accomplish my purpose. Yes, today, tomorrow and the next day I must proceed on my way for it wouldn't do for a prophet of God to be killed except in Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and you'll never see me again until you say, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's where we'll stop today. Uh, So some Pharisees come to Jesus with what reads like a friendly warning. You know, like, yeah, you better look out. You're on Herod's radar now. Remember Herod Antipas, the ruler under Rome over the Galilean region. You're on his radar now. You know what he did to John the Baptist. He killed him, so you better watch out. Which, honestly, is kind of gross when you think about it, because we just read a while back about the Pharisees plotting on how they were going to kill Jesus. Uh, So... 
it's hard to know what's happening here. Either these are some friendly Pharisees, uh, FPs, friendly Pharisees. Uh, th- we know that Nicodemus was, was one of those. Uh, so maybe they are people who are, are you know, uh, not hostile towards Jesus and, and they're wanting to actually help. That's a possibility. More likely, and scholars kind of lean this direction, this was not a friendly warning. It's more of a threat. It's more of a way to try to get Jesus to go on the run, to make Jesus into a fugitive instead of a leader at that point, and then they don't have to mess with him anymore. So Jesus responds with a message for Herod, and first he calls him a fox. Um, and so there's a lot of different uh, uh, views on as to why Jesus uses this particular vernacular. Why a fox? Uh, you know, uh, growing up in the 70s, did he think he was attractive? No, I don't think that was it. <laughs> I, I, and, and it's unlikely that he's trying to say that, Jesus, that, that Herod is being crafty or sneaky. That's the way we normally use that. It's very interesting as you think about the terminology and its usage all through Scripture. One of those things that we always talk about, hyperlinks. Remember, repeated patterns through there that help clue us in as to what it is that's being communicated in this. And when we think about what a fox was, it was an unclean scavenger, oftentimes used to portray somebody who's out for their own interests. Foxes, uh, foxes were used to describe what was going to happen in the destruction of Israel, in the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah says that specifically when the, the Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by Babylon. He said, Zion is laid waste and foxes prowl through it. And given the context of everything that's going on here, here Herod Antipas has set himself up as someone who is you know, the king of the Jews. He's the one who's out looking out for Jewish interests in the wide world of Rome. But in reality, it's like Jesus is trying to say, you're just a harbinger of what's about to take place here. You are just part of these foxes that are prowling through the desolation and corruption of Israel. But he's also showing that he has absolutely no fear of Herod and by extension, no fear of the Roman Empire who is behind him and put him in power. And then he cryptically says he's going to keep on doing the healing and delivering work he's been doing. He's going to wrap it up on the third day, which is clearly an allusion, you know, in hindsight to his resurrection, which his resurrection is an allusion to his death. So in essence, Jesus is saying, I know I'm going to die, but not in Galilee and not in Herod's territory and not by his hand. I'm going to die in Jerusalem the way all the prophets before me have died. Whew. But then it takes this strange turn because we'd expect them to be really angry about this. Jerusalem, you mess everything up. Why do you keep doing this? You kill everybody good. What? Instead of calling down curses on Jerusalem for their unfaithfulness and their, 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 their rejection of God's kingdom, he instead begins this poetic lament. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've wanted to gather you. Gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. And the phrase, but you wouldn't let me. What a profound statement coming from the God of the universe. You wouldn't let me. What an amazing insight into the heart of God. He offers help and salvation and he isn't angry if it's refused. It causes him to lament, to feel sorrow for those who reject the rescue. And I think we learn here that God longs to gather us, but he will not do it by force. In fact, there is nothing forceful in Jesus' ministry.
His words obviously were directed to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem becomes a symbol of any city or people group who repeatedly reject God's plans, God's purposes throughout all of history. The picture of a hen wanting to gather her chicks under her wings is so compassionate. I mean, it's an incredible picture. It carries with it. If you were to take it away from from uh, anthropomorphic usage, you'd, you'd, you'd look at it like a person standing with their arms out wide, calling for the runaway to come back, come back. It's so compassionate. It's just a reminder to us as God's church uh, uh, is that our ministry is one of reconciliation. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. Our ministry is that of reconciliation. God calling out to the human race to be reconciled, calling out to all people to come and be reunited with the God who created us to come back to original intent and purpose, the meaning and the value that's found in being who we were made to be, the fully human being that, that revels as children under God. The church and our ministry, we were never called to be the moral police, to be advancing God's values by force. That was not our calling. We were never called to straighten people out before we bring them to God. Now listen, we will represent a healed morality that God produces in our lives as we follow him and his purposes. We will represent a, a different kind of morality. We'll do that by example in the world around us. We will show our, through our lives the example of what God's healing love can do. I mean, I can look at my life and tell you, I know what God's love can do, how it can transform and change me. I can look around this room and I can say, I know what God's love can do when we submit to him and how he'll change us and transform us. And it's not done through force. It's not done because I got a law passed somewhere. It's done because I submitted to the God who loves me, who made me and who knows what's best for me. We were never called to determine who's in or out with God. We were called to be witnesses who can attest to God's grace that's extended to every person who will respond to it, to every person who wants it. God's grace is there for anyone who wants it. So this section of Luke, it's an important reminder to us as the church and for leaders of the church that we see to it that that our values and our priorities are, are centered on what Jesus has called us to. There's a lot, I've said this so many times, there are a lot of voices right now. There's a lot of noise all around us. It's our responsibility to get our focus back here to Jesus. What's he called us to do? What did he do? Who are we supposed to be if we are emulating and following him? Let's remember that God's kingdom is at work all the time, oftentimes in very small and unnoticed ways. And then let's keep our focus on the source of our salvation. And that is Jesus, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing else will save us. Let's commit to joining in to this wondrous message that God is calling out to the world to come and be reconciled with him and find real life there. Right on? on. All right, very cool. Why don't you stand with me, please?
God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for... We thank you for this revelation of your heart. It's always an amazing thing to me, God, that we can, we can be reading text that, that as we look at it in a broad brushstroke feels like it's angry or terse and that as we look at the details... As we shift our focus, we suddenly see a moonwalking bear. As we shift our focus, Lord, we suddenly see it's your grace. It's your grace there. That unthinkable love you have for us that we certainly didn't deserve that you've poured out on us. And oh, Father, if we're the recipients of that grace, help us then be a demonstration of that grace to the world around us. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has been actually just hanging out with the church, who kind of finds a a level of interest in a cause, but not not necessarily a heart submitted to you. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's convicted by that, who's concerned about that, I pray for them. And if that's you, like if you're here this morning and that's you, and you're thinking, boy, you know, I've been hanging out. I've been hanging out with the church, but I don't know that I've really committed my life to Jesus. That can happen. That can happen right now. I can lead you through a prayer, though it's not the prayer that saves you. It's the intent of the heart behind it. If you want to submit your heart to Jesus, you can just say this, God, I'm sorry. I've been living for myself and not for you. I ask you to save me, to end my exile from God and bring me back into your family. And I will commit my life to you. I will live by your values empowered by your spirit to do so. And that's it. You can ask that and ask that in Jesus' name. In other words, ask that in the authority of Jesus and you're welcomed in to the kingdom of God. And from there, it's a matter of putting that into practice, of setting out each morning as we described, submitting our lives to God to his values and purpose. It means we have to learn what his values and purposes are. It means we set out on a journey now that takes us away from all of the other influences and patterns of this broken world and into the healing pattern of God's purposes. So if you prayed that prayer, man, come talk to me. I would love to talk to you. But otherwise, Lord, we submit ourselves to you this day. Guide us through this week. Help us to be your ambassadors in this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.